Chapter Ten of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter Ten Emerson o monstrous dead unprofitable world that thou canst hear and hearing hold thy way a voice oracular hath pealed to-day to-day a hero's banner is unfurled hast thou no lip for welcome so i said man after man the world smiled and passed by a smile of wistful incredulity as though one spoke of life unto the dead scornful and strange and sorrowful and full of bitter knowledge yet the will is free strong is the soul and wise and beautiful the seeds of godlike power are in us still gods are we bards saints heroes if we will dumb judges answer truth or mockery so wrote matthew arnold when he was a young man in a volume of emerson's essays and when he was in the maturity of his powers not very long before he passed away he said deliberately as wordsworth poetry is in my judgment the most important work done in verse in our language during the present century so emerson's essays are i think the most important work done in prose and yet in the same address in which he had thus expressed himself he has excluded emerson from a place among the great writers the great men of letters and he gives us types cicero plato bacon pascal swift voltaire what does he mean then by saying that emerson's work in prose is the most important work done in prose in the nineteenth century this is a question into which we must presently inquire for it takes us into the very heart of our subject and beside this testimony of matthew arnold let us place that of an eminent countryman of emerson theodore parker used to say that he thanked god for three things particularly the sun the moon and ralph waldo emerson and emerson had this distinction also that he shared with goethe the honor of being the only man in the nineteenth century who fascinated carlyle here surely then we have a remarkable and most memorable man whether he appeals to us or not and to many of us he will not appeal to many a cultivated and intelligent man and woman his work will mean very little it will even perhaps ring false to many his volumes will be a very barmecide's feast emerson is the apostle 
it would perhaps be begging an important question to say the author of a gospel the seer and promulgator of ideas or truths so exalted and divine so essentially transcendental that they may be compared to the holy grail nor would it be fanciful to compare those who explore emerson's volumes for his spiritual message that they may take it for their guide with those who in tennyson's poem set out on the quest of the grail you remember their fortunes to see it galahad perfect purity and percival perfect holiness and both are lost to the world and pass respectively into the spiritual kingdom and into contemplative seclusion honest plain sir bors gets a cheering glimpse of it while imprisoned lancelot sees it but half blinded and half distracted sees it veiled gowan soon gives up the quest takes to frivolities and sees it not at all now i had better confess at once that my fortune in the quest of the emersonian grail has been partly that of sir bors and partly that of sir lancelot the reader's fortunes will also no doubt vary according to temperament and according to sympathy and taste some will perhaps enjoy with galahad and percival the full vision but all i can do is to start you fairly on the quest how the student of emerson is likely to fare as well as the reasons of his thus faring are so clearly indicated by emerson himself that i cannot do better than quote the passage at once as the best way of opening the subject in his lecture on the transcendentalist he thus writes he begins by saying that what is popularly called transcendentalism is idealism and he prefers the terms idealism and idealists to transcendentalism and transcendentalists and then continues quote, as thinkers mankind have ever divided into two sects materialists and idealists the first class founded on experience the second on consciousness the first class beginning to think from the data of the senses the second class perceive that the senses are not final and say the senses give us representations of things but what are the things themselves they cannot tell the materialist insists on facts on history on the force of circumstances and the animal wants of man the idealist on the power of thought and of will on inspiration on miracle on individual culture the materialist takes his departure from the external world and esteems a man as one product of that the idealist takes his departure from the consciousness and reckons the world an appearance his thought 
that is the universe End quote. emerson is preeminently and essentially an idealist he surveys everything man mankind nature the universe all that pertains to the human all that pertains to the divine from the ideal point of view his touchstone is the ideal his standard is the ideal what is material and carnal what is anthropomorphic is with him mere dross and in this spirit we must study him to the materialist he will be simply unintelligible or absurd what reason is in the study of most other philosophers sympathy and sympathetic insight are in the study of emerson wordsworth says of his poet you must love him ere to you he will seem worthy of your love and of emerson this is equally true our appreciation of him will be in exact proportion to our capacity of sympathy without such sympathy much of his most characteristic teaching will be unintelligible will be simply rhapsody that sympathy therefore if we do not already possess it we must acquire and it is not difficult to acquire it in the first place the personality of emerson is a singularly attractive one the philosopher of the ideal illustrated it in his character and in his life sincere and modest benevolent and gentle all who knew him loved him and all who loved revered him for indifferent to ambition and the world's rewards and wholly unselfish he dedicated himself like socrates to the ungrateful task of attempting to kindle the spiritual life in a great intelligent sensual avaricious people and to the disinterested and single-hearted pursuit of truth and virtue secondly however unintelligible however unsatisfactory if you like much of his esoteric philosophy may be he reinterpreted for the modern world in language which all can understand great inspiring illumining consoling truths which deeply concern and come home to all of us and he preached with the most impressive power lucidity and eloquence a gospel sorely needed in these latter days the gospel of cheerfulness and courage of hopeful patience of confidence that the power to which we owe our instincts and our aspirations will not suffer those instincts and aspirations to be frustrate and thirdly his writings both in verse and in prose sparkle with gems of thought of sentiment of expression which arrest and charm at once and forever which once read are never forgotten such to give one example in verse and one in prose would be so nigh is grandeur to our dust so near to god is man when duty whispers low 
thou must the youth replies i can and that which befits us embosomed in beauty and wonder as we are is cheerfulness and courage and the endeavor to realize our aspirations shall not the heart which has received so much trust the power by which it lives to the ancestry parents and surroundings using the word in its most comprehensive sense of men of genius are almost always to be traced not only the general characteristics of their genius but the explanation of the turn it took and emerson was no exception he was descended from a long line of earnest and serious preachers one of his ancestors was the rev peter bulkeley rector of wood hill in bedfordshire and fellow of st john's college cambridge who in consequence of laud's persecutions of the nonconformists emigrated to new england in sixteen thirty four he was one of the fathers of nonconformity in america and was the author of a celebrated work gospel covenant one of the sentiments in which anticipates a leading tenet of his illustrious descendant the church is built on the foundations of prophets and apostles not in regard of their persons but of their doctrines his grandfather built the old manse of concord celebrated by hawthorne and was a chaplain in the army which fought for independence dying in seventeen seventy six his father a very eloquent preacher and a locally distinguished man of letters in whom we trace many of the characteristics of the son was pastor of the first unitarian church at boston of his mother nothing remarkable is recorded but she was a serious pious good woman ralph waldo was born may twenty fifth eighteen o three at boston within a kite-string's distance of the birthplace of benjamin franklin his father died prematurely eight years later leaving mrs emerson very ill provided for with six children all under ten years of age she brought up her children well under the severe discipline of poverty so that they had to work as servants chopping wood lighting fires and doing what they could to help their mother thus was young emerson strengthened in frugality and self-denial by what he describes as the iron hand of poverty of necessity of austerity he was a serious and thoughtful child early encouraged to read good books shakespeare milton addison and the like by his aunt mary moody emerson this aunt must certainly be reckoned among the formative influences of emerson's life he set himself many years afterwards quote, she must always occupy a saint's place in my household and i have no hour of poetry or philosophy since i knew these things 
into which she does not enter as a genius End quote. she was a curious saint for she was a woman of a most imperious temper alternately grim and rigid and most affectionate and tender partly a tenaciously conservative puritan and partly in responsive sympathy with the new ideas as a boy and at school emerson came perilously near to being a prig being we are told quite faultless never joining in games and amusements keeping to himself and most studious and quietly observant but without any airs of superiority and without any conceit and so whatever may have been the proximity not a prig in august eighteen seventeen he entered harvard university here he in no way distinguished himself he seems to have shirked the serious study of serious subjects and chiefly employed his time in what may be called contemplatively lounging and reading such books as interested him and they were always good books such as chaucer shakespeare swift addison stern and plutarch and montaigne in translations of the classics in the original he knew next to nothing and never made himself a scholar in april eighteen twenty four he began to read to qualify himself for the ministry Quote, i am he wrote beginning my professional studies in a month i shall be legally a man i cannot dissemble that my abilities are below my ambition i have or had a strong imagination and consequently a keen relish for the beauties of poetry my reasoning faculty is proportionately weak nor can i ever hope to write a butler's analogy or an essay of hume i burn after the a liquid immensum infinitumque which cicero desired and this indicates that emerson had at least one of the attributes of genius as distinguished from talent he took correctly his own measure it was not a good start in life this loose and desultory education and it cannot be disguised that emerson's work has been most seriously affected by it it is this want of discipline and severe systematic training which makes such a gulf between emerson and the classics of philosophy he speaks himself of his cardinal vice of intellectual dissipation sinful strolling from book to book from care to idleness a malady that belongs he adds to the chapter of incurables after taking his degree he taught for some months in a school reading meanwhile in divinity that he might qualify himself for a license to preach he was approbated as it was called in october eighteen twenty six and on the tenth of that month preached his first sermon 
after remaining a year at divinity hall he became the ordained colleague of henry ware pastor of the second unitarian church of boston and shortly afterwards succeeded ware as sole incumbent this is the beginning of emerson's public career and now he began seriously to think for himself and gradually to formulate the opinions and doctrines of which he was to become the prophet the crisis came in eighteen thirty two when on conscientious grounds he resigned his pastorate as pastor he had to celebrate the rite of the lord's supper in the sense of regarding it as a sacrament established by christ and in his name by the church as a sacrament he could not regard or celebrate it he was willing to continue the service provided the rite was regarded as merely one of commemoration to this the committee appointed by the congregation would not submit and emerson therefore resigned his cure his explanation of his objection is so significant and characteristic that it may be quoted Quote, the use of the elements however suitable to the people and the modes of thought in the east where it originated is foreign and unsuited to affect us the jewish was a religion of forms it was all body it had no life and the almighty god was pleased to qualify and send forth a man to teach men that they must serve him with the heart that only that life was religious which was thoroughly good that sacrifice was smoke and forms were shadows this man lived and died true to this purpose and now with his blessed word and life before us christians must contend that it is a matter of vital importance really a duty to commemorate him by a certain form whether that form be agreeable to their understandings or not is not this to make vain the gift of god is not this to turn back the hand on the dial End quote. Footnote. the lord's supper from his sermon on resigning his pastorate delivered september ninth eighteen thirty two he took the text from romans chapter fourteen verse seventeen the kingdom of god is not meat and drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the holy ghost End footnote the truth is that emerson had convinced himself of what is embodied in his own saying quote, let every man be his own church End quote. that all forms of faith whether christian or pagan whether calvinist or unitarian are merely versions so to speak of the moral law that if men are to be saved they cannot be saved miraculously or vicariously but by their own god-directed efforts it was a serious step for him to take and the anxiety involved in it was complicated by the distress 
occasioned by the death of his wife whom he had married about two years before his health was seriously affected and a voyage to europe was recommended so on christmas day eighteen thirty two he sailed for europe of this visit to europe he has given a short but vivid account in the first chapter of his english traits in italy he met lander in london coleridge at the lakes wordsworth who told him that he thought carlyle was sometimes insane at Craigenputtock, carlyle this same carlyle who was sometimes insane and this was his most memorable experience the two men laid the foundation of an intimate lifelong acquaintance which has its record in the correspondence edited by c e norton the first letter being dated may fourteenth eighteen thirty four the last april eighteen seventy two there was much in emerson's nature and temperament which went out to meet carlyle carlyle was the more potent spirit but emerson was no idolater nor can he be called even a disciple of carlyle though mutually attracted each moved in his own orbit emerson returned to america with his health re-established his mind enlarged his powers rapidly maturing his convictions confirmed and hardened into fanaticism Quote, i thank the great god he wrote in his diary who has led me through this great european scene this last schoolroom in which he has pleased to instruct me he has thereby comforted and confirmed me in my convictions many things i owe to the sight of these men but what he had learnt he had learnt negatively the limitations of the great the littleness of the famous he had learnt that fame is a conventional thing that man is a sadly limitary spirit he had learnt the folly of prematurely canonizing in eighteen thirty five he married again and settled at concord in the coolidge house a peaceful beautiful spot where he remained to the end of his days the house in which he lived let us note in passing is hawthorne's old manse in which was written mosses from an old manse and now emerson's career began in real earnest it was initiated by a great sorrow the death of his beloved brother charles in such sorrow is the baptism of genius unto spiritual power for is it not truthfully written who ne'er his bread in sorrow ate who ne'er the mournful midnight hours weeping upon his bed has sate he knows you not ye heavenly powers footnote longfellow's motto hyperion book one End footnote to eighteen thirty six eighteen thirty seven and eighteen thirty eight 
belong emerson's three most comprehensively characteristic works the works which at once initiated and fulfilled at least in embryo his gospel to his countrymen and to the world the first was a little book of less than a hundred small pages entitled nature which may be described as a mystic prose poem or rhapsody in eight chapters it is says holmes a kind of new england genesis in place of the old testament one i call it says carlyle the foundation and ground plan on which you may build whatsoever of great and true that has been given you to build and this it verily was and on this foundation emerson did build ever afterwards the next performance was the american scholar an oration delivered before the phi beta kappa society at cambridge august thirty first eighteen thirty seven this was a trumpet call to young america its note is struck at the opening Quote, our day of dependence our long apprenticeship to the learning of other lands draws to a close the millions that around us are rushing into life cannot always be fed on the sere remains of foreign harvests events actions arise that must be sung that will sing themselves who can doubt that poetry will revive and lead in a new age as the star in the constellation harp which now flames in our zenith astronomers announce shall one day be the pole star for a thousand years it is a plea for spiritual and intellectual emancipation for generous liberal culture the great destinies of the future are in the hands of the scholar not the scholar as the past understood the word but as the future must understand it the scholar as representing a man who must take up into himself all the ability of the time all the contributions of the past all the hopes of the future he must be a university of knowledges he must represent the full development not of one or two but of all man's faculties and capacities he must not be the slave of tradition and authority he must not anchor in the past he must sail onward in the present to the future and he concludes in summary quote, we will walk on our own feet we will work with our own hands we will speak our own minds the study of letters shall be no longer a name for pity for doubt and for sensual indulgence the dread of man and the love of man shall be a wall of defense and a wreath of joy around all a nation of men will for the first time exist because each believes himself inspired by the divine soul which also inspires all men End quote. 
such was the oration which lowell calls an event without any former parallel in american literary annals and which holmes describes as our intellectual declaration of independence emerson's third memorable discourse was an address before the senior class in divinity college cambridge delivered on sunday evening july fifteenth eighteen thirty eight in this he dealt as freely and boldly with religion as in the former discourse he had with education it was a plea for the broadest latitudinarianism a plea for private right of judgment as against all historical creeds bibles churches exalting individual consciousness above all authority making the individual soul supreme arbiter in spiritual matters a plea for absolute spiritual emancipation without bitterness or levity without any irreverence he takes exception to historical christianity because he says it exaggerates the personal the positive the ritual because it monopolizes what is general and common it assumes he complains that the age of inspiration is past that the bible is closed that god was rather than is that he spake not that he is speaking he complains that the doctrine of inspiration is lost and that the base doctrine of the majority of voices usurps the place of the doctrine of the soul great exception was taken to this discourse and his former colleague ware both wrote and preached against it emerson's letter to him in reply is an example of his modest and amiable but at the same time firm and uncompromising temper and now as i have explained emerson's position and work when he was fully started on his career we may pause for a moment to glance at his surroundings and at what had preceded his appearance the chief activity in america was mercantile the general tone and character of life and society grossly material absorbed in business pursuits the majority cared nothing for culture or indeed for anything which was not conducive to what was called practical success higher education was scarcely in its infancy a national literature could hardly be said to exist what literature existed was imitative and commonplace modeled on that of the old world in religion puritanism prevailed and puritanism was as hostile to belles-lettres philosophy and art as the coarser philistinism of the mart exchange and workshop while public life was industrial and utilitarian private life stagnated in dull and colorless conventionality but signs of a reaction were at hand 
in religion unitarianism had been for some time gaining ground but it had as little vitalizing power as its grimmer rival in eighteen fifteen was started the north american review and with this review the dawn of american literature broke among emerson's predecessors may be specified his divinity teacher dr channing one of the most eloquent of american pulpit orators and writers and william cullen bryant whose two poems thanatopsis and the forest hymn fairly entitle him to the honor of being called the american wordsworth and whose essay and popular history of the united states give him a distinguished place among masters of prose the greatest names in american literature edgar allan poe longfellow hawthorne prescott lowell motley were his contemporaries and among his audience the transcendental movement with which emerson is so prominently associated had defined itself before his earliest writings appeared it was the result partly of the inevitable reaction against materialism partly of the peculiar conditions of the time a passion for facts for what is intelligible and tangible for what can be formularized and presented definitely and concretely had come into collision with the powers which were dissolving the old regime criticism was beginning to demolish the bases of the old religion science was becoming restlessly active the long dominion of puritanism had induced a serious earnest spirit and though it had ceased to satisfy the intellectual and spiritual needs of men it had prepared them to welcome an attempt to reconstruct life on an ideal basis and so it was that all that was tending in this direction throughout europe became influential in america the wild and extravagant visions of swedenborg the cloudy reveries of coleridge the noble idealism of wordsworth the new bases for speculation supplied by philosophers like kant fichte schelling the intense spiritualism of richter novalis all that schiller all that goethe all that herder had contributed to the widening of the intellectual and spiritual horizon nor must we omit carlyle who just before emerson had begun his career had published his essay on characteristics and his signs of the times as well as his sartor resartus of this movement emerson after the publication of the works to which i have referred became the acknowledged leader became the prophet the apostle and he led not merely by virtue of the power and eloquence of his addresses lectures and writings but by the influence and charm of his personal character and example 
his simplicity his sincerity his unselfish devotion to the work which he had set himself to do appealed to everyone his words had power says hawthorne because they accorded with his thoughts and his thoughts had reality and depth because they harmonized with the life that he always lived emerson never posed was never aggressive he was always reverent he was always modest he never argued a serene smile was all that an opponent as a rule got from him as reply and all felt his personal charm he had as the spanish phrase so beautifully puts it a face like a blessing for forty years he lectured and published lectures peddling out he said all the wit i can gather from time or from nature and am pained at heart to see how thankfully that little is received as a lecturer and writer he was very poorly paid and was never in easy circumstances till he was nearly seventy years old but he never complained he practised what he preached plain living and high thinking an epoch in the history of the movement led by emerson was marked in july eighteen forty by the establishment of the dial a magazine which continued to appear quarterly till april eighteen forty four for the first two years it was edited by that most remarkable woman margaret fuller and after april eighteen forty two by emerson here the transcendentalists gave expression to their faith in ideas their reactionary protests against the doctrines of the philosophy of the senses their strenuous assertion of the principle that the forms of one age are inadequate to express the wants of another their contention that it is not in commercial and material prosperity but in spiritual and intellectual activity that human success and man's true beatitude consist its spirit was catholic and cosmopolitan all the creeds of the world were canvassed and criticized philosophic works were reviewed it illustrates all that is best and all that is most extravagant in the movement emerson extensively contributed so also did theodore parker alcott ripley and thoreau carlyle wrote i love your dial and yet it is with a kind of shudder you seem to me in danger of dividing yourselves from the fact of the present universe in which alone ugly as it is can i find any anchorage and soaring away after ideas beliefs revelations and such like into perilous altitudes as i think beyond the curve of perpetual frost for one thing i know not how to utter what impression you give me another result of the transcendental movement 
was the famous brook farm experiment founded in eighteen forty two by george ripley it was an attempt to reconcile labor capital and culture partly based on fourierism and partly on the general impulse to universal reform in a letter written in eighteen forty one dr channing had said i have for a long time dreamed of an association in which the members instead of preying on one another after the fashion of this world should live together as brothers seeking one another's elevation and spiritual growth this was to be realized a farm of about two hundred acres was purchased in west roxbury about nine miles from boston a most charming spot the original pioneers were about twenty growing at last when the fullest number was reached to one hundred fifty everyone was to labor at some trade or give some equivalent in labor for the privilege of belonging to the community a fair price would be paid for that labor which would thus purchase leisure to live in all the faculties of the soul the highest activity of the settlement was education and there were teachers in almost every subject these teachers found recreation in such useful pursuits as pleased them farming gardening or some other branch of domestic service ripley himself for example who taught intellectual and moral philosophy and mathematics liked to milk cows finding such occupation favorable to contemplation particularly when the cow's tail was looped up behind or he would help to clean out the stables because he found sordid and dirty work done against the grain conducive to moral improvement to say nothing of its usefulness the religion of the place was absolutely cosmopolitan everyone could believe what he pleased and practiced the rites of his creed if he had any some were swedenborgians one died in the episcopal faith and was buried in accordance with its rites many were unitarians but all called themselves christians because all reverenced the character and example of christ in fact the ideal was to lead a pure moral useful healthy life untrammeled by any creeds any forms of intellectual political and social coercion beyond what respect for the higher self and the interests of humanity imposed ripley did all in his power to induce emerson to join a community some of the leading principles of which he had done so much to inspire but he resolutely declined and his letter to ripley illustrates that shrewd and practical good sense which generally underlay his most extravagant transcendentalism he had owned that it was a noble and generous movement on the part of its projectors to try an experiment of better living but he writes 
quote, I am in many respects placed as I wish to be. I cannot accuse my townsmen or my neighbors of my domestic grievances. It seems to me a circuitous and obverse way of relieving myself to put upon your community the emancipation which I ought to take upon myself. The institution of hired service is to me very disagreeable. I should like to come one step nearer nature than this usage permits, but surely I need not sell my house and remove my family to Newton in order to make the experiment of labor and self-help. I am already in the act of trying some domestic and social experiments which would gain nothing. End quote. So tactfully and so courteously did he wave Brook Farm aside. And indeed he had important work to do. The establishment of the dial and what culminated in the Brook Farm experiment had the effect of leading to movements which reduced transcendentalism to an absurdity in eighteen forty and eighteen forty one a convention for universal reform was assembled at chardon street boston and a most motley group it was consisting in emerson's own words of madmen madwomen men with beards dunkers muggletonians come-outers groaners agrarians seventh-day baptists quakers abolitionists calvinists unitarians and philosophers his hope was in young america his task was to control and discipline the enthusiasm excited he preached against extravagance and the abuse of energy inculcating that it was more true and noble to live than to theorize and speculate he discountenanced the withdrawal from public and domestic duties he pointed out that there was practical work to do while the colossal wrongs of the indian of the negro of the emigrant remained unmitigated and the religious civil and judicial forms of the country are confessedly effete and offensive in eighteen forty one he published the first volume of his collected essays it contained two of his most extravagant namely oversoul and circles two of his wisest self-reliance and compensation one of his most poetical love in january eighteen forty two a great sorrow befell him a sorrow which haunted his life the loss of his dear little son his eldest son who was only five years old nearly the last connected words which he spoke on his own deathbed forty-one years later were oh that beautiful boy and this loss inspired his poem the threnody in eighteen forty four he delivered the address the young american 
in which he the most american of americans exhorted the americans to be americans to develop on their own lines to fulfill themselves Quote, if only the men are employed in conspiring with the designs of the spirit who led us hither and is leading us still we shall quickly enough advance out of all hearing of other censures out of all regrets of our own into a new and more excellent social state than history has recorded the delivery of this address was succeeded by the publication of his second collection of essays the most remarkable essays in the volume are character manners and gifts but two are of particular interest as throwing light on his relation to his country and his countrymen namely politics and new england reformers in emerson may be said to have been combined many of the characteristics of barclay wordsworth and franklin and whenever he deals with social and political questions in their practical aspect comes out invariably the franklin side of him shrewdness level-headedness common sense in politics he had no confidence either in the democrats or in the conservatives whose characteristics he admirably analyzes the new england reformers is an equally admirable commentary on the virtues and defects of the transcendentalists and reformers though he had the greatest sympathy with their ideals sympathy never misled him in eighteen forty seven emerson having been invited to give a series of lectures before the mechanics institutes of the northern and midland counties sailed for england in october of that year his experiences the friends he made the great men he met he has himself recorded in a series of notes which on his return to america he expanded into lectures and afterwards published in the most concrete and popular of his books english traits over emerson's judgments on england and the english we need not pause he certainly found no heroes among us and no studies for a social and political utopia he praises what all the world has praised in us and makes such deductions as a man of his temper and ideals would be likely to make he was a genial and kindly observer but as a delineator and critic given to exaggeration and somewhat loose in his assertions and generalizations on his return to america he had added very little if anything to his stock of ideas and not a touch of anglicism modified his essentially american temper his cosmopolitanism had perhaps become more confirmed but that is all that can be said from the lectures which he delivered in england 
which were no doubt suggested by carlyle's heroes and hero worship he selected some for publication they make up what he calls his representative men plato swedenborg montaigne shakespeare napoleon goethe as criticisms of these great men his lectures are it is needless to say mere absurdities save here and there for flashes of penetrating insight each represents a congeries of ideas of intensely emersonian ideas and on these he discourses but they are full of inspiration fertilizingly suggestive nowhere has emerson preached his gospel with more eloquence and emphasis he says in the opening address on the uses of great men quote, within the limits of human education and agency we may say great men exist that there may be greater men End quote. and on this text he preaches reading these essays is like receiving a series of galvanic shocks and the reader is fortunate if he does not emerge from their perusal a nervously mental wreck of personal details little remains to be told a central figure in a society the members of which were some of the most brilliant representatives of american literature revered and beloved by a large circle incessantly lecturing and writing in every way furthering the cause of truth justice and liberty as he conceived them though cautiously refraining from all association with extravagance and abuse his life glided on to honored old age the steady and vehement friend of negro emancipation he was on the side of the northerners in the war having before proposed to buy the slaves from the planters for two thousand millions which he poor visionary thought would be enthusiastically subscribed a third visit to europe in eighteen seventy two in which he saw for the last time his old friend carlyle preceded the final decade of his long life he was much gratified by the honors and recognition given him by harvard university and for his nomination in eighteen seventy four for the lord rectorship of glasgow where he obtained five hundred votes against lord beaconsfield's seven hundred his life had been so full and so vigorously energetic that as years advanced he found it difficult to realize that he was getting old in one of his poems terminus he gives beautiful expression to the resignation and tranquillity with which he accepted the inevitable Quote, as the bird trims her to the gale i trim myself to the storm of time i man the rudder reef the sail obey the voice at eve obeyed at prime 
lowly faithful banish fear right onward drive unharmed the port well worth the cruise is near and every wave is charmed as long as his faculties served him he continued to be usefully busy on the platform and with his pen protesting against utilitarian ethics against materialism in philosophy against formality in religion against blind submission to tradition and authority his decline was gradual and placid latterly his memory entirely failed him as to facts and details and though it had never been accurate with regard to them it had done him loyal service impressions were what he valued ideas were everything to him facts and particulars mere husks o w holmes tells a characteristic and pathetic anecdote illustrating this the last time i saw him living he says was at longfellow's funeral i was sitting opposite to him when he rose and going to the side of the coffin looked intently upon the face of the dead poet a few minutes later he rose again and looked once more on the familiar features not apparently remembering that he had just done so then he said to a friend near him that gentleman was a sweet beautiful soul but i have entirely forgotten his name he died on april twenty seventh eighteen eighty two in his eightieth year and we cannot better take our leave of him than in his own words for in those words we may be sure he would have wished us to take our leave of him voice of earth to earth returned prayers of saints that inly burned saying what is excellent as god lives is permanent hearts are dust hearts loves remain hearts love will meet thee again house and tenant go to ground lost in god in godhead found End of chapter ten